This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. The Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 204 for March MMXXI. Julius Caesar, may he rest in peace. That Girl the Oracle is brought to you by... Hey there. I'm sure you know about the Capes and Lunatics Podcast, but have you heard about the Capes and Lunatics Sidekicks Podcast? It's a fun home for classic and new reviews of just about everything. We have the Ultimate Spider Cast, where we cover everything Spider-Man. The Quantum Zone 
where we talk the classic Marvel character Quasar and do deep dives on the cosmic side of Marvel. We also have Comic Capers, where we cover everything old and new in comics. It could be anything, any company, any decade. And we also have our Media Mondays, where we cover some kind of TV show, be it a Arrowverse uh, current hit or our summer specials where we do reviews of uh, classic episodes of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer spinoff Angel. So, if you're a fan of pop culture and media, you should really check it out. And I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Batgirl the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. I have to say that I was going to record this yesterday and yesterday I had no intro planned and I was thinking, what can I do? Because I did want to mention some heavy stuff, which I'll give a trigger warning before I start doing that. But I thought, oh man, that's not the way to do an intro. And then I ended up not recording because it sounded like someone was doing some heavy metal stuff like hacksawing metal or it just sounded like there was a chop shop going on outside of my apartment really close by and I just knew that it would be picked up on the microphone so I thought now I can't record today but I've got a funny intro I guess of why someone is doing whatever they're doing I guess probably some car some car repairs potentially but I just, well, now I have an intro, so there you go. And it is two days past or two days beyond the departure of one of my dearly beloveds, Julius Caesar, guys, Julius Caesar. And I hope that you guys wore black. I wore black today in celebration. Also some Latin, it est quad it est. It is what it is just to to celebrate and memorialize him. Unfortunately, Carolyn Coca, my former chief Tata correspondent, I've had to cancel her. So she said something pretty disrespectful to me. I basically asked if she was going to mourn or, you know, will she wear black tomorrow? And she said, absolutely not. He had a comment and referenced Chicago. And I thought the utter disrespect. So she's been canceled, at least for a back roll to Oracle. So we might not hear her again on this particular show. I did want to talk about some heavy stuff in my intro. I let me connect all of this stuff together because a bunch of random things were coming together to all coincide for the the same heavy material. So when I first say trigger warning, I'm going to mention, and I will say briefly, I think I'll, I'll talk about it for a little bit, but I think it warrants a larger conversation. I think it needs to be a conversation. It, it shouldn't just be me talking to the camera. And I would love people to also send feedback in their ideas. I don't know if this demands 
an exploratory episode all of its own. I wonder, I don't know how that would be received, but I think it's a good question to ask. So the trigger warning is that I am going to talk about rape and sexual assault uh, briefly. Now, the reason why I want to bring it up again is really... It's connecting to the Shipper special, the Shipper Spotlight special that Don and I did. And, it, you know, I, I one of my favorite stories, of course, is Identity Crisis. And he had brought up, you know, obviously one part that is problematic with that particular story is the fact that there is this rape and whether the story necessitated it or, you know, could there have been a way around it? And he brought up, I think, either he or Harold, you know, whenever there's a, a rape scene or a rape happens in any form of media, you kind of step back and ask yourself, was this necessary? What point did it have or, or what purpose does it serve? And could you get away with getting close to the edge but not stepping off? So I don't know, just any minor like touching almost, like unwanted touching, no consent, that right there. Because I, at least for me, when I see something like that and or I'm noticing like this is where it's going, oh my gosh, what's happening? Perhaps this girl is, is – passed out drunk and there's a guy approaching her, which uh, there's a connection there too that I'll talk about soon. And then perhaps it stops like someone can't like that was enough. That was enough. We were on, there was some tension there. There was suspense. Definitely I, some discomfiture, I think for viewers, hopefully. So is that enough? And this popped up Again, so this conversation, I don't think there was really an answer when Don and I talked about it. And I thought about it a while afterwards, just the purpose of rape scenes in media and should we even have them. And that discussion popped up again because uh, over at Required Reading, with which just came out episode, oh gosh, was it episode 51 or 52? We did, I led a discussion on some epistles from Ovid's Herodes. And if you're not aware of what the Herodes are, Ovid writes these letters from the point of view of women in classic epics. And this was, well, it was unknown, right? You're giving words and a perspective to a woman in the epic. And not saying that, of course, they had some before, like Penelope, of course, she spoke in the Odyssey. But just to see it from her perspective was different. So we did Penelope, Dido, Penelope writing to Odysseus, Dido writing to Aeneas, Medea writing to Jason, and then we had a couplet of Paris writing to Helen and then Helen responding to that letter that Paris wrote. And so focusing on just that last one, we did the, the rape did pop up and I can't remember how, how that conversation went, but then I brought up, you know, here's this, this, Oh, it must've been that terrible film that I saw a section of Helen of Troy and, and, and Tom said, you know, I basically, I, I think echoing what, what Donovan had been saying and just, you know, what, what is the purpose? Why, why do we have rape scenes? And so I said, I've been thinking about this a while and I'm on the fence about it because I think obviously or not obviously, but there are probably plenty of people, a vast majority, hopefully that do not want to see that in their media, any form, whether it's written or visual. I totally get that. But I wonder if in showing it, or actually, let's go this way, in, if, if we don't show 
rape. So then we would be more comfortable with this. Are we portraying an idealistic world that, yes, we hope existed, but unfortunately doesn't? And then do we gloss over these really troubling things that do happen every day? And so then I wonder, maybe it is necessary to have rape and sexual assault scenes. And that sounds so wrong to say. I just wonder, how can we use them well? So I guess connecting to that. So we had that discussion. We talked about Night, which recently that should be out next month. And and that connected to, uh, because there's certain instances in Night where people come and say, this is happening, you need to get out now. And, and those people aren't believed. And that connected to victims that are that are trying to speak out against their their victimizer and, and not being believed. And then I went to the gym, ironically, and not ironically, ironically, what I saw was a, the news story that I think it was seven women have accused Cuomo of uh, some, some sexual advances, sexual harassment, assault, and, you know, trying to basically blame the victim or at least make it seem like they're they're liars right to bring their character down and then so all these things these random things are happening and then a promising woman came out on Redbox. i just got a an email about it and i went out and got that and watched this and i thought oh my gosh we'll get all of this stuff that's happening which connects to the the drunken person that you might see and what a, an intense film first of all just a promising woman i recommend it but I mean, trigger warning there, I think that perhaps people who have experienced sexual assault or rape, I don't think that you should put yourself in that situation. But it was it was really good. It was intense. It had a shocking ending. And I was really worried. I don't want to spoil, but I was really worried that the cycle was going to continue. But fortunately, the cycle, to a certain extent, there's justice in the end. I guess I'll say it that way. I got a bit distracted by Carrie Mulligan's voice. Her voice sounded so deep, deeper than I'm used to. I've seen her in several other films. And it's not as deep as, say, Lauren Bacall, but I just thought, wow, your, your, your I don't know, tenor perhaps has, has really gone down. And I wondered, well, maybe as I've gotten older, my, my tenor has, has also dropped. So all of this media is, is, is coming into to play. And so that surrounds a traumatic moment for a particular character. And that whole premise is based off of that. So you need, unfortunately, that traumatic sexual assault to happen in order for the rest of that story to take place. I think of Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, which I actually really enjoy. And that, it's, I think Lisbeth's rape in the beginning might not be necessary, but it connects well with the rest of, with the main mystery that you're trying to find out because there's all this terrible stuff happening to women and it builds up who Elizabeth is as this avenger of of women who have been wronged and, and and a protector of women. So I think that connects as well. And also there's a connection or there's a reason behind it because of uh, this guilt that Stig Larson had felt. So there's that too. And I, I'm just trying to think, you know, Handmaid's Tale, which I unfortunately watched. I did not want to watch it. I don't care for the book, though I recognize its importance in literature. And I think maybe I should give it another try. But I go over once in a while to some friend's house and we alternate 
recommendations on things. So the previous time I brought over Gilmore Girls and we watched a couple of episodes and I said, well, next time we're going to watch Handmaid's Tale. And I thought, oh no. And we did. And I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to finish it, but I ended up, and I didn't think I was going to, I didn't think I'd be able to, but I ended up binging and I've, I've now finished, I guess in two weeks, I'm all caught up now. And part of it was just, I, I needed to know what was going to happen to these characters and whether they're going to be okay. But that whole series is predicated on rape and, and that society. And so even though, I don't know, those sex scenes seem germane because there's not struggling and everything, it's not consent at all. Though it's interesting to, if you've seen it, to juxtapose or at least compare, I guess, the regular ceremonies with one that they do later on with June to induce pregnancy, which was probably one of the worst scenes that I'd seen in that entire series. So, oh man, for art, for art's sake, it seems like sometimes, well, I guess with what I've seen, but I, I'm pretty cautious about the media that I intake. And, and if, you know, there's going to be a rape, I'm not necessarily going to choose to watch it. But for what I've seen, it seems like they really, there's an importance to it. And there's not levity. And it's not just, uh, it's not trivial matter. And with comics, though, I'm trying to think of the last time that I've seen a rape or a sexual assault scene in com- like modern day I think, yeah, you just have to be careful. And so that's this this thing that I'm trying to figure out is do we maybe – so I, I guess it's a controversial question, and this is what I'd like to hear from you, listeners and, and watchers, and you know whether this would be maybe a good discussion episode. Do you think that maybe rape and sexual assault scenes, if used wisely, are actually necessary in order to educate and show people that this stuff is out there? Because I just want, I feel like if you don't talk about it, people are going to be like, well, it doesn't exist. And there might be some people laughing at that right now, but honestly, think about it. There are some things out there that, I mean, the Holocaust, the night is a perfect example that people are starting to, I, the, in the, even in the past, I mean, I know of someone who knows someone who says that the Holocaust is a hoax. So un, until you, and we're so past, um, it seems like it's so far past 9-11 that people are forgetting. So if, if you don't show it, then people feel like it doesn't exist. And we want to get to the point where it doesn't exist. But until we reach that point, I think maybe it is good to to have them. It sounds bad, but I, that's my question. So if you guys, I think that's my big question for you. If you want to uh, take this and and email me or yeah if you want to have a discussion i think it'd be great to have a discussion with the canceled carol and coca on this but it's it's i don't think there's a, there's no simple answer to this it really depends on how it's being presented but i honestly think that maybe it does need to be presented but i don't but also you know i don't want it to be repeatedly like everything we see is is rape and sexual assault which seems to happen right and SVU, Special Victims Unit, uh, which is actually my favorite Law and Order, but more so because of the characters, Benson and Stabor. So anyways, that's what I've been thinking about. And I didn't want to start off my episode with that as the intro, but that would have been my intro had I not been dropped in a chop shop. So let's move on to, to more happy things, happier things. And this is the Find Your Joy segment, Shag's Mac and Cheese of Comfort and Joy. And I would say primarily what's been giving me joy recently actually has been watching 
older, older Lupin the Third films. I just decided, and there's so much Lupin the Third material out there. But I thought, you know what? What if I, every weekend, maybe once on a Saturday, once on Sunday, pick a, a film to watch and watch it. And so I've watched two so far. I One was Tokyo Crisis, and the other one, I can't remember what it was called, but it had the Bank of the World. And they've they've been okay. I've not been wow. I think Tokyo Crisis was better. I've not been wowed by them, and they've not, actually not had the m- m- most recent slash modern voice actors in English, which I really love. I just love how the guy who plays Lupin laughs. Uh, it just seems totally like Lupin. So, and, and normally I'm a bit of a snob with anime. I think I tend towards the original Japanese. Some some exceptions are the Ghibli films. I do prefer the English voice actors. But with Lupin, I also prefer the English just because I really like the actors that they have for that. But that has been fun. And the games that I've been playing haven't necessarily been joy-bringing, maybe because they've been downers. I just finished Beyond two souls and before that i think was everybody's gone to the rapture and then little nightmares which was well that was fun slash anxiety (laughs) inducing so yeah i mean and same old same old just trying to get out there and uh, i'm applying to jobs now so that's always interesting. I don't know if that's a find your joy, that's find your anxiety. So so there we are. And I hope you guys are doing well and keeping healthy. And I really want to impress upon you, if you've gotten your vaccine, both of them, which I've gotten both of them, blessedly, please don't be irresponsible. Don't be like, man, I've got it and now I've got this shield around me and, and I'm protected and uh, I can do whatever I want, please. That's that's not the purpose of it. So that's all I ask of you. Okay, so the this episode seems like a bunch of random issues that I'm going to be doing. And I feel like, I don't know, I feel like... I could be better and if I had all the like the months and I was doing that for a bit, but then it just got off. Like with some of these here, I had to do them and, and it threw me off on the Nightwing, Robin, Batgirl, Birds of Prey schedule. So I've just got to get through this. So I feel like this episode and then the next episode, I've got some random ones. And I think maybe the following one, which would be May, I think that's going to be Bruce Wayne, Murder Fugitive, Murderer Fugitive. But with the back half, just to tell you what I'm doing there, I am looking at future state in this episode. And then starting in the next episode, I will be looking at Batman and Nightwing consistently as long as Barbara has a part to play. Otherwise, it's not really worth my time. So they'll become modern quickies. So let's do some of these quickies. First up was Turning Points which was a five-issue miniseries that was published in 2001 detailing the progression of Batman's relationship with James Gordon throughout the years. So similar to the Batman and Superman, which now I can't even remember what that was called, that relationship through the years. I guess they're, they happened upon a good thing, and so they're keeping on. And the creators differ throughout the issues, but issue number three is Ed Brubaker and Dick Giordano. And two... I just want to say that Babs does appear having made dinner for her father, but in three, she has a post, uh, the killing joke conversation with Batman who never visited her after she got out of the hospital. And he is shutting people out because he feels guilty and doesn't want anyone else to get hurt. And she calls him a self-centered jerk. Well done, ma'am. She reminds him that they survived and her father has the same guilt, but is suffering alone. So he needs to 
Oh man, that sounds just like Officer Down that Batman just focuses on his own stuff. I really want to talk about that. Why he just focuses on his own grief rather than thinking outwardly. That's why I have problems with calling him an empathetic character. I guess he has moments of that, but I just wonder what is this? Why why do you do this? That issue I think that scene in in general was pretty important and wow, what a jerk to not visit one of your family members after they got out of the hospital. So there you go. Then we have Detective Comics 755. Here's your hat. What's your hurry? April 2001 is the cover date. Writer Greg Rucka, penciler Sean Martin Bra, <laughs> anchor Steve Mitchell, colors Wildstorm FX. Bruce Wayne attends James Gordon's retirement party. Oh, sorry. This is, where did I get this from? Uh-oh. I think I got it from the DC, no. Oh, yeah, I think I did. The DC Wiki. I didn't want to plagiarize since I legitimately copied and pasted. So anyways, Bruce Wayne attends James Gordon's retirement dinner along with his bodyguard, Sasha Bordeaux, who is embarrassed to be with him, although she suspects there is more to him than meets the eye. She is not buying the Playboy image at all. The dinner is interrupted twice, first by Mangles Manchester, who had failed to plan ahead for the fact that the room would be full of cops and thus far from ideal for getting revenge on Gordon, second by Two-Face, who takes Sasha as a hostage, but after flipping his coin, the villain offers a moving tribute to his former ally before allowing himself to be arrested. And I just want to say that it's Gordon's retirement party. So, of course, she's there. So more so in body than in speech bubble. Then there's Detective Comics 758, July 2001. We're focusing on the backup, not the main story. And it is History Lesson by Ed Brubaker and Steve Leiber. Barbara Gordon asks Renee Montoya about the new commissioner, Michael Aikens, and how he's settling in. His attitude to Batman is particularly interesting, and Montoya explains why this is. Years ago, the work of the police department in Gateway City was undermined by a vigilante named Watchdog. The people of the city refused to cooperate with the police, thinking that Watchdog would solve everything. Unfortunately, a kidnapping investigation went horribly wrong, ending in the death of both the vigilante and the kidnappers, and ensuring that the victim was not found for several weeks, dead having been locked in a car's trunk for the whole time. However, Aikens knows that Gotham City needs Batman, and that frightens him. And, okay, so she has dinner with Renee Montoya, obviously. She's become friends with her after her father's shooting, so we learn about that. And then she slyly asks how the new commissioner is doing. It seems like he is a decent guy, at least from the story that Montoya is telling her. And... (laughs) It also seems like uh, from the introduction, introductory conversation that Montoya is still experiencing some compulsory heterosexuality. So it seems like she's dating the men, and it's interesting that it's by Ed Brubaker. So she's, she's still working that out right now. But that was, that was pretty good. I want to say something. Oh, it was about – so I was catching up. I was just trying to be sure that she didn't appear. Barbara didn't appear between – 755 and 758. And Sasha, I was like, she seems so familiar. I'm pretty sure she's the woman. I mean, I'll find out. In Batman Fugitive, that talks to, is either Dinah or Barbara, and Hemming and Hine, and she knows that he's Batman, and the other person knows that he's Batman, but they don't tell each other. And I remember reading that random issue for Professor Cheapskate's show. So I can't wait to finally revisit that and have more context. So 
Okay. So the main review that I'm going to be focusing on, and then there's a quickie in the end, or, oh my gosh, a couple quickies. I'm going to be looking at some Gotham Knights issues. And I'm so sorry, I can't do any visual stuff until we get to the second half of this episode, mainly because the the way that I was looking at these issues was online. And I feel like if I pull up a browser, my computer will explode because of Zoom. So it was already being a little frenetic in the beginning of this recording. So you'll have to take my word for it, but I do really recommend issue 12. So Batman Gotham Knights issue 12. I'm going to focus mostly on that one. That one's going to be a full review. Titled Damages, February 2001 is the cover date. Writer Jen Van Meter, penciler Coy Turnbull, inker John Lowell, and colorist Pamela Rama. Oh, look, a woman. Uh, two women, I suppose. There is a serial mugger in Gotham City who is only attacking handicapped people, having to use a wheelchair herself. <laughs> okay. Barbara Gordon is interested in solving this case. She finds out that the victims all made claims for compensation against those who originally caused their injuries. Barbara decides not to talk to her father or Batman about this case because she knows that both men blame themselves for her paraplegia because she was shot by the Joker who was targeting them. Instead, Barbara works with Alfred Pennyworth to track down a number of people who match the mugger's description. Barbara's final measure is to sue her father <laughs> for putting her in harm's way. Yeah, you heard that right. Bruce Wayne, she's also suing Bruce Wayne for providing Arkham Asylum with a deficient alarm system and suing Dr. Arkham for not being able to cure the joker the hoax works perfectly the serial mugger breaks into her apartment the next night but the man did not anticipate barbara's close combat skills or the policemen who were observing the building all night and the mugger is arrested so i like this and i will say that with gotham knights i think I remember doing this a while ago with somebody but it's i like it i like i guess it's is that what you would consider an anthology series, but just kind of a side story to, you know, what's going on day in, day out. Some some side cases that we don't see because we're focusing on the main books and the main cases there. So I did like that. I thought it was a good story. I mean, it involves a different type of victim and one which, of course, resonates with Barbara. I don't really, I can't really think of the last time, like this type of story, I don't, feels like the only time I've ever read something like this. I'm glad that she got to detective the mission herself and she even takes the perp down herself and the, the, the people are kind of freaked out. Like, how was she able to do this? And her father's like, I don't even know. Uh, but of course she could because she's my daughter. Uh, and, and even her father tells the press that she handled herself well, which was great. So it wasn't just like, Oh, you know, giving her every opportunity to do everything. And then the police come in. So I'm glad that that, that the whole issue was about her and really giving her all this agency. It was nice to involve Alfred in the story. And I think it makes sense why she can't talk to her father or Bruce since they feel guilty about why she's in the chair. Though I'm not sure why it wouldn't have been Dick or Tim. And even date-wise, February 2001, I feel like she still would have been on good terms with Dick. We know that Dick is going to go, well, there's already a problem in the relationship post Joker last laugh. So I, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I would have picked somebody else, but Alfred, hmm, maybe she needed someone who was more of a father figure than a peer 
perhaps, and who had been there, who had been there through it all probably, and probably visited her in the hospital when, and post-hospital, even though Bruce didn't. So that might be the connection why and, and going on there. There is a weird scene, again, I I'm sorry, I can't see you or show you, uh, that just a weird scene. It made me feel uncomfortable with Alfred's hands on bad shoulders as she's looking at a computer screen. And, you know, not to say that Alfred would do anything that is inappropriate, but I also don't see Alfred as like someone who would touch somebody else. I think he always thinks of himself in a particular station. And besides hugs, I just, I don't know. It's not something that I would have envisioned him doing. I imagine that she warned Jim and Bruce before the press conference, but this probably hit them hard nonetheless to say, hey, I've got this idea. I am going to pretend to sue you because of what happened to me in the killing joke. But don't worry, it's it's a hoax. I'm I'm trying to get you know, get somebody out. Force them out of their hiding place. And but still hearing that, like, oh man, because to a certain extent, the things that she was gonna sue them on, she could have absolutely sued them on. And and I think, you know, they play a part. They play a part to that as well. So it probably hurt them, but we don't see it because it is a bad story. So let's not cut away and and, and comfort those when it's not their story. The killing joke scenes again, over and over again. I feel like it happens a lot in this particular episode, actually. There are a couple quick cut scenes and other scenes that are difficult to follow or that the narration doesn't really help you. And you have to figure out what Babs is thinking, feeling, or even doing. Really beginning with her errands. And especially with the perp at the end, I mean, how did that even get set up? How did he get in or where are they? I mean, the the synopsis there, the synopsizer makes the assumption that he just breaks into her place. But I don't know. It's like a whole page was missing. So I think just transitions were really poor in this particular issue. And I was flipping back and forth and, and figuring out the where's the connective tissue. I also really hope people, really hope people, don't actually go people tipping because she she talks about that that people there are people that push other people that are in wheelchairs over and i shook my head and thought please let this not exist but i think the fact that it's written about and this person knows about it i don't think they're inventing the wheel i feel like it probably does actually exist so i'm sorry that that exists i'm sorry that there are terrible human beings in the world that would consider doing that I'm going to give this a 7 out of 10 wheelchairs. A good story, putting Babs at the center, really giving her agency and taking and taking the men out, really, that she was the tool in their story. So it flipped around and, and removed them, and she was yeah able to do everything on her own. But the transitions were poor in this particular comic. So there you go, 7. Okay, now two quickies to wrap up. Got Batman and Gotham Knights 17, Matatoa Part 2, July 2001 is the cover date. Writer Devin Grayson, penciler Roger Robinson, inker John Floyd, and colorist Rob Schwager. Batman battles for his life. Uh, sorry, this is taken from Comicsology. Co- Batman battles for his life with the Eternal Shaman, whose destiny includes killing the Dark Knight and taking on his nocturnal crime-fighting duties. It would secure Batman a safe, crime-free Gotham City for all eternity, but at what cost does it all truly come? So Batman wonders why Dick is in Gotham and, oh, that's right, and Dick hems and haws and says he and Babs are pretty seriously involved. So there you go. Batman doesn't have much of a reaction, though Dick wanted him to be happy for them. And Batman says, who says I'm not? 
Mm, okay. On a later call with Bab, she pretends to not know Dick is in town, and Batman tells her he knows that they're dating. And then she calls Nightwing and tells him he's in trouble because he was supposed to tell her before he was going to tell him about all of this. And near the end, he says, <laughs> he'll, uh, and she asks, what? speak up and Batman basically that he's going to come over to her place and she says huh speak up and Batman says he'll be over later so Nightwing is clearly embarrassed and also in this particular issue Batman officially adopts Dick which I think was huge and at one point that I want to know Babs calls Bruce boss but with no icicle bubbles and as you are aware I don't like when she calls him boss I don't think she would call him boss unless it has icicle bubbles. And I think there is a difference there. So I was disappointed about that. But this continues on. This is a Devin Grayson thing because she calls him boss again in Batman Gotham Knights 18 Cavernous. August 2001 is the cover date. Writer Devin Grayson, penciler Roger Robinson, inker John Floyd, colorist Rob Schwager. Again from Comixology, Aquaman guest stars as the Dark Knight realizes that he's become more of a loner since the loss of Gordon, Alfred's leave of absence, and Oracle's anger with him. Batman finds odd comfort in the company of the King of the Seas. So he calls Oracle, this is actually pretty funny, calls Oracle on three separate occasions, one after the other. Seems like he's pretty bored and, and wanting something to do. And each time she's waiting on info, so he calls, what about this? And he's like, yeah, I'll tell you when. And he said, oh, have you thought about doing this? Yeah, 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 yeah. But the third time, Dick actually interrupts when he calls and tells him to give it a rest, which I just love that they're probably hanging out and, the, and then he interrupts him and uh, yeah, I thought that that was great. Just put Batman in his place. So there you go. So just to give a feel for that, I think, you know, just looking at my document, I think there might be a couple more of these where I'm just going through random issues, but then I'll start to really have a a good momentum and rhythm with just focusing on Batgirl, Birds of Prey, Nightwing, maybe occasionally Robin or Batman and getting away from some of these random things that pop up. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Okay. So final thing for this part is listener emails. So bear with me and my only listener email pretty sure, is coming from Tom Panneris, like already mentioned a couple times in this particular episode. Okay, so from Tom, he says, Stella, I've been meaning to send this email your way literally since episode 200 came out, but a combination of laziness, life stuff, and my thoughts on anything Batman related being about as valuable as that tissue you forgot to remove from your pocket before throwing your pants into the washing machine prevented me from doing so. He always, he does feel like he doesn't want to be a bat splainer because people bat splain to him. Anyway, I'm finally sending the email. So here are some of my thoughts about the past few episodes. Episode 200. I really enjoyed your opening stream of consciousness on empathy and compassion. Although considering you did, you, <laughs> you did an entire episode on empathy and literature, I know you are an expert on the topic. What gave me the most pause in a good way were your points about compassion as well as how you spend some of the segment talking about how your views, opinions, etc. have changed over the past 11 years. 
I guess I found that to be interesting because to me, that seems to be a given considering the way we grow and hopefully mature. However, our culture works against that. It seems that people are constantly being held to account for old dusty tweets or something that was said in an interview, despite proof that they still don't feel that way or have acted differently since. Granted, some of that social media outrage is completely justified, but there has to be some sort of rubric or metric of accountability here. I mean, as a longtime listener, I'm not going to chastise you for something you said in a really old episode. Oh boy. Aside from your misguided views on raisins, because the evolution of your views is literally recorded. You don't owe an explanation to those unwilling to do their homework, but this is a good topic, (laughs) but this is a good topic for discussion on a show because there are plenty of, and in bold, he says questions to ask about it. Not sure how many in bold answers will come up though. I just to pause on that, that was another thing that I was thinking about. And it, it's almost like grace. At what point does or how big a part does grace play in this of, you know, grace that I'm giving to you? And, and for, can, if you've grown from that experience and, and I don't know, sought forgiveness, hopefully, can we forgive you <laughs> and recognize that that was a bad thing that had happened, but you've moved on? And that's, I mean, that happened in A Promising Young Woman. I almost forgot the title. I don't, oh man, I guess if you don't want to know about a big plot point, maybe you should fast forward a bit. But at one point, the guy that she is dating, who's a really great guy, he seems really, is willing to go as slow as possible with her romantically. You find out that he was involved mainly from like, he was visual, he was watching the sexual assault that had happened that's central to the plot. And so that was a huge, oh man, when that, well, it it broke up the main character, obviously. And then that broke me up too. I thought, oh no, is there no safety here? But I'm thinking, and he even, he tries to, you know, explain away. He said, we were young, we were kids. And that's not the excuse to have. I don't know if he even apologized I'd have to rewatch. Unfortunately, I gave the red box back. But I'm just thinking if he did, and uh, another problem is he didn't own up to it, he didn't apologize. But since it is in the past, had he done things a bit better, I wonder if there could have been, you know, some grace involved, like, oh, you know, you were involved in this. But with her mind state, I or just where she was, I don't know if she would have been able to. But I did think about that, that, oh, man, he was involved. But look at who he is now. So I don't know. But yeah, and another thing is that every day, and I just finished reading White Fragility, and that's something that I've mentioned before in other conversations, that I could have plenty of racist thoughts, hopefully not throughout the day, but just, you know, something might pop up because of, you know, how, you know, the culture in which I was raised is going to consistently happen. And I just need to, I need to own it. I need to apologize and learn from it and move on. And so if, if everything, if I, all in accounting, if all of my sins were held up and no one was forgiving, there's no, I wouldn't be able to move past any of the stuff that I had. So I do agree with you. I think it's really, I, I think there's also, you know, not a statue of limitations, but are there some things that were just not, that are just unforgivable? So that's another, whew, that's another question. Okay. 
As for the so back to Tom, as for the Joker's last laugh, I actually never read the storyline back when it came out in 2001. I was only buying a few titles at the time and didn't have the money to spend on a company wide event. Based on your synopsis and in your interview with Scott Beatty, this story sounds like a fun popcorn concept, but didn't really live up to that potential. I'm not much of a fan of the character these days anyway, because of the way he's been elevated to some sort of, oh, I don't know, pretentious philosophical statement instead of simply being a comic book villain. I loved your interview with Jordan B. Gorf and go, Gorf! I started reading Batman and Detective right before Gorf became the assistant editor and left the book shortly after he did, so his tenure on the Bat titles defined my Batman phase. Copyright Shack. I loved hearing some of the inside baseball stuff, especially his explanation of the different looks of Batman during that period. While I wasn't always a fan of some interpretations, i.e. Kelly Jones, that was the person whose name I couldn't remember a couple episodes ago. I've always loved the character's malleability and the post-crisis era, especially the post-Nightfall era epitomized that. Episode 202. Don Shipper picks were great, and I did a fist pump when he mentioned Tim Ariana and Tim Stephanie. I was exactly their age when Tim became Robin and then spoiler debuted in tech, so Tim was the comic book character I identified with. I was never as cool as him, though. Oh, Tom, you're cool to me, though. Episode 203. This was fun to listen to, especially since I had never heard of this miniseries before. I don't think it's one I'll seek out, but if I see it in a quarter bin or something, I might give it a look. You guys brought, oh, I was trying to think of what it was. So this is the Orpheus Rising. You guys brought up a few things that I found interesting about comics, the media, and culture. First, there's the coloring of skin tones. Coloring in comics has a long history that would make for a very cool discussion topic on a panel or episode. I agree. I agree. Coloring of non-white characters over the past 80 to 90 years has ranged from innocuous or straightforward, cyborg skin tone was always just brown, to downright racist, yellow coloring the 1940s for East Asian characters, this weird sunburn-looking coloring for Hispanic Latino characters or Latinx characters well into the 1990s. So it does beg the question, which choices in coloring of skin tone were consciously meant to show a non-white race as inferior and which were not? Next, you mentioned the media attention given to disappearances of white people, especially white women, as opposed to people of color. This literally is, there literally is a term for this, missing white woman syndrome. It gets brought up every few years when there is a high profile missing persons case on the level of Sandra Levy or Natalie Holloway, because there are often people who are also missing, but who don't get media coverage because that doesn't get the ratings. A fun game to play is tallying up the race and gender of missing people or murder victims on shows like Dateline. They tend to be very white and very female. I didn't mean to sound snarky there, BTW, because those are horrific crimes with very real victims. I was simply simply being critical of the way the media favors certain stories over others. I we I think we agree with you. Finally, during the episode you talked about police brutality against people of color and while you well, maybe while I mention what we've seen the last decade, the only older incident mentioned was the Rodney King beating. While that certainly was high profile, I think that the more direct inspiration for some of what is in this miniseries might have been the cases of Abner Luima and Armadou Dialu, which were carried out by the NYPD. Luima, a Haitian immigrant, was arrested in 1997 and during his interrog—oh my gosh—and during his interrogation was physically and sexually assaulted by police officers. An incident the department then tried to cover up. Dialu, an immigrant from Guinea who was living in New York and in February 1999 was stopped by the police because they said he matched the description of a serial rapist. At one point during the stop, he reached for his wallet, which the officer said they mistook for a gun. That's the the trope, isn't it? They shot, oh my gosh, they shot at him 41 times, hitting him 19 times. 
This led to a huge public outcry in New York with investigations into the methods used by the NYPD and is one of the enduring legacies of that department under Commissioner Raymond Kelly and Mayor Rudy Giuliani. It is also, by the way, the inspiration for the Bruce Springsteen song, 41 Shots. It's just conjecture on my part, but the shooting's proximity to when Orpheus Rising would have gone into production makes me think that Alex Simmons was using it for inspiration or commentary. Okay, that was way too long of an email and probably too mansplaining, so I apologize. Keep up the great work. Well, Tom, I would say that you didn't mansplain because none of those things was I aware of. I think maybe I had known or had heard about missing white woman syndrome, but absolutely do not apologize. I think you are one of the, because you know what I appreciate about him, about Tom, and then I'll I'll comment on this, is that he is really aware of that. And I, I really do, this is me being genuine. I really do appreciate that. So he either explain like this is what I'm going to do or you know please forgive me or just doesn't do it at all really so I that's why I love having him as my my co-host for required reading thank you so much for that I'm going to actually forward that to Jacob and Shai so that they can see that as well and I am astounded I mean like I said I went on Wikipedia to see to see the history of it and and I for the most part was just scrolling through and looking at names and what it had but I didn't look into details and perhaps I this sounds macabre but perhaps I should just spend time and see this this history of oh people uh, most especially uh black men being killed and harmed by the police so thank you. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Remember, guys, you can send me any questions or comments to backroll.oracle at gmail.com or post on the episode. I haven't had any of those for a while unless I'm missing them, but I usually get an email. And I think the big question that I, yeah, I wanted to ask about is, is, of course, that rape and sexual assault. Do you think that we actually do need, is it maybe important to portray this with gravitas in order to educate and show that these things happen in real life. So that's my question there. And as a sub question, I guess, would you appreciate, I guess I, I would love to do a colorism episode, honestly, colorism in comics. I think that that, that would almost be, I would almost want to do a paper on that. To be honest, that could be a thesis paper. I think that would, if I sit down to do that, it's going to take some heavy research. And so I think that would be a big endeavor that I couldn't be like, I'm going to do this next month. I I would have to sit down and take some time, but I'd love to do a colorism episode. And I think I'd like to do one on rape and sexual assault, but I, I, both of those I think need to be really colorism. I think just needs more research and the rape and sexual assault one, I think needs some major caution. So so some food for thought. I mean, would you guys like to like to hear stuff, you know, discussion? on that i don't know okay so thanks again tom i really appreciate it i appreciate you so i think that's it for this particular part yeah and then when you come back the light will change because i think it's getting to maybe it'll be okay maybe i can make it so when i come back i'm going to look at future state the next batman two and four the i called the backup and well You'll have a surprise when you tune into the next part. But first, it's Zias's Radio Hour featuring the big dollhouse from Hairspray, the Broadway musical. See you guys soon.
样If you are watching on the YouTube, you should be delighted. But this image, oh my gosh. I only objectified two men in my life. One of them is Donovan Morgan Grant. The other one is Dick Grayson. When I remember when this dropped, I think, first of all, the news story dropped. It was false. And they said it was a cover. And Nicole Scott said, no, actually, that's internal. And they were just showing this... one image man i uh who i posted that i reposted it several different times and at one point i think she had i don't know if it was a sale but she was just you know come and check out my stuff and i thought oh i wonder if this if she's got the the page for this and i knew it was going to be expensive because whenever they have those particular pages they're in the hundreds and i think it was like 180 maybe but they were sold out when I went on there. But this, if I could have just this image right here as a nice little, what, 14 by 17? If I ever get back to a con, maybe it'll exist as just that. that would, it would be the sexiest thing that I've ever bought. And it would delight me. I would probably put it over 
my bed, I think, my headboard. But anyways, I, yeah, so that's Future State Nightwing. That's really the reason why you should read it. But I did want to at least say with Future State Nightwing that Batgirl and Oracle, which is confusing, he calls her, what does he call her? He calls her Babs, but then uh, he calls her Batgirl too, which was confusing just because of Future State Batman. So I said Batgirl slash Oracle does appear in Future State Nightwing. It's, it's just not significant enough, I think, to a role to, to warrant a full review. But really what was significant was that nudity. So we're going to focus on Future State Batman 2 and 4 and specifically the backups. And it's interesting. I don't know if they're considered truly backups. But I, I like to think of them as, as backups just because it gives me this sense of or this wave of nostalgia for Detective Comics when Barbara Gordon was appearing in those backups that he had eight pages. And I think this was way more than eight pages. At least it felt that way. But it's just it's fun. I don't want their importance to be, I don't know, dampened. Uh, that, you know, oh, it's a back. Why are you calling it a backup? They deserve a full feature. But I, I think there's just nice nostalgia attached to it. Thank you so much to Theodos Wright from the Batman universe for providing unwittingly the synopsis for both of these. You did the hard work, so I don't have to, but I appreciate you. So Future State Batman number two, Batgirls part one, writer Vita Ayala, artist Anike, colorist Trish Mulville. A new inmate arrives at the magistrate detention facility. To everyone's surprise, a new resident is Cassandra Kane. The facility's warden offers her a deal if she turns over details of the resistance whereabouts. Cass doesn't utter a word. Perhaps she'll have a change of mind after one night with her new cellmate, Stephanie Brown. Cass isn't happy to see her former partner, someone who is known to the resistance as a traitor, and she lets that displeasure known with a punch. Stephanie attempts to chat with her old friend, but the former assassin is having none of it. The next day in the wreck area, Cassandra is looking for a fight, approaching several former adversaries to garner an adverse reaction. Unfortunately, they all pass on the chance before Cass realizes they've been forewarned by Steph to stay away. Cass finds Spoiler in the laundry room, and the two former Batgirls come to blows. During the melee, Steph slips a device into Cass's pocket right before they are both taken out by a magistrate guard. They're both placed in solitary confinement. Minutes later, lunch is served, and Cass finds an earbud on her plate. She places it in her ear and finds Steph on the other end. She's jamming surveillance with the device she placed in Cass's pocket. Spoiler recites a passage from Book 5 of the Odyssey, and Cass realizes that she and Steph are both on the same side. Steph explains how her own mission was given to her by Nightwing after Oracle went missing and how the person known by all as the traitor to resistance to the resistance was actually still fighting on that side. Cass in turn explains why she allowed herself to get caught. There were rumors that Batman was still alive, likely under the detention center. Little did they know that it wasn't Bruce beneath the detention center, but Barbara Gordon, unconscious and connected to wires and subconsciously relaying the message that Batman was alive. The two devise a plan. The next day, they spring their plan into action with Steph convincing the inmates, both heroes and villains, to distract the guards. A prison riot is about to start. Okay. I don't want to talk about the art. Did I, re- I remember when... Ian Prime was on. He had spoken highly of Anike. I believe that is the correct way to pronounce her name and that he was just excited for it. And I do, I do like the art. I, it reminds me of something, but I can't put my finger on it, but I I do have to laugh about a couple things and I do have some critiques. I don't think it's in this one, but it, it might be, but with Cass, 
she's got her haircut, which I have move that away. I've been away from the game, right? The Batman game. So I can't say whether she has this haircut now, but just looking at it is like, oh man, that's a classic, you know, sort of anime style haircut. And then with Steph, I think just the the presentation of Steph, of course you want to make her, you know, evil, (laughs) evil and uh, rough looking. So you've got this asymmetrical haircut. You've got the studs that are spikes in her ear. You've got an eye patch. What's worse than that? And then later on, she's smoking. And it almost reminds me of Tara Markov and just let's make her really seem bad. So we're going to portray her like that, but no, overall I do really enjoy the art. I, I have specific preferences for art, so it's, it's not my favorite, but I think that Anike does a great job with it. Oh man, that's a haunting image, isn't it? With Babs. I love all the classics references. You should know me by now that <laughs> well enough by now that that is true. That once they started quoting it, though, you know what I wondered, the nerdy part of me really wondered what translation they were using to quote Homer's Odyssey. I love that spoiler is the top dog in the big house. And <laughs> I was thinking this is a bit of a reversal that maybe they made Spoiler the evil one because they know how much fans, a.k.a. Donovan, hated evil Cass in the way back. So they didn't want to revisit that travesty. So they decided to go with with Spoiler. And already mentioned all that, of course, with cigarettes. Let's make her as evil as possible. I thought it was really interesting, and I don't know if... Oh, this reminds me. Since I'm on it, I'll tell you two things about this right here. Number one, do not use, and I don't know if in print it looks different, but do not use yellow font for narration boxes. And I understand what they're trying to do because that's the thing now. And and I do enjoy it where the color coding to the character, whoever is speaking, but this does not work well. There's got to be, maybe have the box be black and then it would be better. The other thing is this Latin that's here. Give me a break. I roll my eyes. I mean, if if a job existed where I could be a, what are those people called? An advisor, a Latin advisor, and people could just pay me whenever they need me. You know, I'm talking Marvel, DC, films, things, video games. I would love to. I would do, I would do it justice. This right here says, and life, potentially. Okay, that's, I guess, what they're wanting but i mean it actually could no to atari no that doesn't make sense yeah so and life but we tom is the accusative and so they should have just done and and <laughs> we at we ta so it just assumes that there's something else there and also that it's an object so it's something is being done to the life or see i'm so think they just want to look nice or sound nice and that doesn't really make sense. So there you go. Oh, okay. So back to my original point before I got distracted by that, it takes four pages for Cassandra to say something, which is really interesting. She only speaks when she basically at the very end of her her initial interaction with Steph. And I thought that was really interesting. Now, part of it is 
exposition dumping and, and using the guard to talk. But I wondered if, you know, to a certain extent, we're, we're reflecting back on who Cassandra was and, and having her be this silent, more silent character. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, oh, gosh. Yeah. So I thought of Donovan when I was reading this. And also I thought of the death of the Oracle. But during the flashback about the meeting, where did I see that? I saw something... Well, I guess if we're just talking about here that Oracle is missing and then she and Nightwing come up with this plan, I thought, okay, so Cass is again left out of this important meeting. Only Nightwing and Steph know the truth that Steph is now a double agent, we'll call her. But you'd think that you would include Stephanie's BFF, though I'm kind of thinking pre New 52 relationship. But just assuming, you know, if they're this close, especially I think in in conversation about how betrayed Cassandra feels and then at the end of four, it seems like they are close and just to leave her out of there. And so, I mean, Cass was probably really close with Babs too. Again, I've been out of the game, so please forgive me. I'm just assuming some of these things until I I get back into it. But I I just thought, oh man, she's left out of it again. She doesn't know things. And I, I think it'll be something that, well, yeah, actually I can mention this now that it's interesting that Cassandra, Cassandra doesn't give Steph benefit of the doubt and trusting that there was probably something more going on. And she does own that in, in four, but this one, I just thought, man, you're so quick potentially to see and see Steph doing these sketchy things and be like, well, yeah, she's a villain. She's betrayed us rather than there must be something else going on and digging deeper. So that, that I think this relationship here or Cassandra's part in this relationship or the Bat family or this duo or trio is a little bit off, I think, for me. Oracle is missing. Batman is dead. But I was wondering if really Oracle, the disappearance of Oracle seems to be a catalyst for this dystopian society. You know, who is more likely to change the outcome? Which person getting them back or having them alive? And I feel like, I don't know. And, you know, part of it is is right here on this page that without Oracle or Oracle went missing, Batman died, she lost hope. But I just wonder, you know, of the two of them, which brings more hope? Because Batman, I think he wants to correct things, but I don't know if he ever looks for for hope necessarily or to like be a beacon of hope. I think he relies on his family and his compatriots to do that. So I just feel like Oracle seems to be at least my thought in the presentation of this story, she seems to really be put in the center that she, the loss of her, I think everything fell apart. And think about it, Oracle, even if we think about the classic Oracle, pre-New 52, had this tie to the the community, the superhero community, and she could bring everyone together. And so without that tie, how do you communicate? How do you get things done? How do you get any, any information? So I feel like she probably is the the most important character. And yeah, we, we need to go and rescue her or find her. And Batman's important too, but you know. Okay, yeah. So the other, uh, I guess, critique that I had, or maybe the only critique I had, was just a weird thing with Barda and what she looks. Look at Barda. I think if Gorf were here, that maybe he would talk about this too, that it's I don't know, the proportions seem really bizarre on Barda. And she is 
Number one, I think she needs to be way taller than she is right now because when I see her next to Scott Free, I mean, he's a little miniature. And so here, I feel like her head should be scraping the border of that box. And that I think would even it out because it just, I don't know. Number, I couldn't tell. I mean, when I was looking at it, I thought there's only one woman that could be, it's probably Barda, but it does not look like Barda. So I just feel like that she was not drawn very well. But I, this was an interesting, it was an interesting story. I think I guess I'll I'll talk about it as a whole maybe at the end. So let's, let's do that. Let's go to part four. I think that's all I have to say about that particular one. Eye patch and cigarettes. That's how you become evil. So if you ever see me smoking a cigarette or with an eye patch, you know that something is up. That girls. Okay. So here we go. Future State Batman number four. Batgirls part two. Writer Vita Ayea. Artist Anike. Colorist Trish Mulvihill. Underneath the magistrate detention center, Cass uses an implanted key generator to get access to a secluded area of the facility while Steph and the other inmates continue their riot. The guards get an upper hand thanks to shock cuffs, but Cass disables them from below, allowing the battle to continue. While the fight goes on, Cass makes her way to her final destination, where she doesn't find Batman as was planned, but a sedated Barbara Gordon connected to wires. Cass frees her and they go to make their escape, taking out more magistrate guards while doing it. The magistrate guards have regained control the riot as they make their move on the primary instigator, Steph. Before they can do their worst, a loud sound startles the Batgirls. Oracle has returned to speak for the people of Gotham and the Resistance, who has arrived to provide and assist to the inmates. Back at the Resistance's base, Babs and Dick reconnect and recollect on recent events. As they kiss, Cass and Steph have their own recollection of how things have turned out for them and their new teammates from the now-closed detention center. As they watch the former inmates build a new camp, they hug as the sunrise is bringing on a new be- beginning. So the art here, I think, again, I'll, I'll say that I enjoyed it. I actually really, in particular, liked this page. It's It reminded me of some of the stuff that Babs Tarr and Cameron Stewart were doing in the Burnside Batgirl run, where, especially during, like, detectiving scenes where you'd have kind of ghosts of what Babs was envisioning happening or things in the background, and or you would see movement of a suspect or something like that. So, uh, uh, simpler than that but i liked the blueprints and and seeing that i always think those kind of things are fun some of my favorite actually scenes from different comics are and i feel like this happened a lot in hawkeye and i feel like maybe she hulk but where you were seeing someone maybe go through an apartment complex and they were talking as they were going along i I really enjoy those so i thought that it might have been significant well, what is the significance of Cass finding Barbara, that Cassandra is the one to find Barbara? I did not like it. I think, I suppose, given the plot, it had to be because Steph, Cass isn't going to go in there and get everyone who are basically villains and heroes together to fight this riot. Cass doesn't have that currency, I think, in the prison, but Steph does because she's been there. So she has to be there. But Cass, I don't know. It it seems like she was so disconnected, even though she was aware that Batman is gone and Oracle is gone. Steph is the one who took on that mission to find them, to find Oracle specifically. So I almost really would have liked Stephanie to be the one to find Oracle. And again, because I've been out of the game, I might say that a lot. I don't know what their relationship is like. I think 
if I'm thinking about what I've been reading now, you know, 2001, absolutely. I mean, this is great. Tears in her eyes, emotional reunion. But now I wonder if it, if it is as, does that make as much sense? Do they have as close a relationship? But it's beautiful nonetheless. Uh, this, look at this. Cass, man, she's been lifting, lifting the weights, carrying Babs out. Doesn't look like she's struggling at all. I feel like there might be some struggle. I don't know. I guess if, if I were in Cass's place, I don't think I'd be able to do it, even though I would like to. But I think I probably would do the piggyback instead of that. And yeah, because I just don't think I'd be able to do it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting costume technology where she has on this. I don't even, I don't get how that happened because she had, oh, that's right. That's right. She had that little bead ball thing. So it kind of reminds me of Flash in a way that the costume is in there, I guess. I don't know. She throws it and all of a sudden the guard costume turns into, or outfit turns into her own. So that was interesting. I do wonder why Oracle I mean, I didn't get a sense of the answer of why she was hooked up to that machine. Maybe something that I missed because I haven't read beyond this story. Was it for the info that she has in her brain? Is it the chip? Um, it does make sense. And she said she was able to fight back through the connection a little bit. That's how she was able to send off those messages, but just wanted a bit more detail on that. And I don't know that they knew she was Oracle. I don't know. I could be wrong. I may have missed something, but if they knew she was Oracle, golly, they should have protected her way more just given the fact that she knows so much. I wonder if, I don't know, did they know her significance? I don't know that they did because they could have taken down so many. Well, anyways, I guess lots of questions I'm not going to be able to, to answer. Nightwing. Yeah, Nightwing's a bit too single-minded, which I am shocked about trying to see where this was oh yeah so stephanie is asking Cass for help and she is or nightwing is telling Cass basically that spoiler knew the the risks Cass needs to get oracle out of there and <laughs> well both Cass and Babs are not having any of that. They're not leaving anyone behind. But I just, I don't know. He's just ready to disavow and abandon spoiler and seems so governmental in that way. I think even Batman wouldn't do that, wouldn't sacrifice a player in, in the game, one of his people. And perhaps it speaks to his continual emotional connection with Barbara that he just really wants her out of there. But it, 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 it shows poorly on him, I think, that particular scene. So we do find out that, as I was saying, that Barbara is, in fact, the, the master strategist. She is the important person behind it all, that, that really the reason why the resistance, I think, could end the war. So I think that answers my question before of, yeah, her missing is the catalyst, and she's the one most likely, if you were to choose between Batman or Barbara, she would be the one that you needed to choose if you were put in a two-face slash Rachel or Rachel doll situation. You want to pick Rachel in that in that sense. All of a sudden, they start calling Cass orphan, which I didn't really understand that. Oh, yeah, see? 
Okay. So if you're on the page, sorry, I flipped as I'm flipping thoughts come up to me or as I'm speaking and I flip things come up. So this guy doesn't even know. He, he says, who is that? So they don't even know the asset that they have. So again, I'm just wondering, why did you take Barbara and what was the purpose of that? Mm-mm-mm. I don't know. Her speech to the people reminds me of speeches that, well, actually the speech that Wonder Woman makes in 1984 and some of the speeches that Supergirl has made on the, the TV show. Okay. Then at the very end, we've got some, oh yeah, see, oh, there it was. Look at this. So Nightwing, Man Bat, Orphan all of a sudden, even though the story is called Batgirls and I think she was mentioned as Batgirl, Batwoman, Talia, look, oh, Kate, I can't believe you still exist. Talia Alul and Robin, it looks like the Tim Robin. And then there's uh, the fight there. So a bit interesting. I'm not sure there's some confusion with identities i feel like which needs to be clear cleared up i feel like it should have been cleared up already if this is in the future man you should have just made it bat girls and then you would have given readers hope that oh look in the future there are bat girls but they didn't do it okay so here's the shipping moment which is lovely and he's got some guilt he's got some guilt oh this is man i was reading about something similar to this in white fragility basically like making it your own make you know and then he has to be comforted there's a problem with that so i just wanted to put that out there but it's a nice little shipper moment and you know what I'm never letting you out of my sight again. Sounds like a romance novel that I would have read. And then this right here, them coming together. Cass, sorry, if you're not watching, when Cass and Steph are talking, uh, she says, um, oh, where was I? I'm so sorry for not for not trusting you. Of all of us, you have always had the most faith in the cause. So she does own up on that. I wish her actions would have spoken louder however and then at the very end i mean they're having this this i almost said romantic moment this moment i feel like i don't think i was alone either i think some people thought and i wondered before they just ended up like this whether there was some sort of romantic tension going on and i don't know what i was like feeling it like oh are we ready or is this happening is this doing it I don't know if it had happened what I would have felt between those two because on two sides here, why not? You know, they're they're good friends. Why not have it evolve into a romantic relationship? But on the other side, I think that's one of the problems with, with uh, shipping is just because you have two women that are friends doesn't mean that, you know, there's romantic tension between them. Though the Lena Luther and Supergirl, I have to tell you that I I mean, I get a sense all the time of romance between those two. But yeah, so you don't want to always say that, oh, they're close. Of course, they're probably together. So I'm okay with it being platonic and loving in that way rather than romantic. But I think people thought that something was about to happen. So there you go. Did you do a Babs writing? I think uh, certainly has. Oh yeah. So her writing Babs, I think was great. She has more compassion and it also just feels like Babs. And then if you just look at the the speech, the the people, I feel like she was written really well. And and I think it it she lives up to this crucial piece of the resistance and being the heart of it and the hope of it. So I think it's it's well done. 
And overall, I think the story was interesting, Um, you know, starting off with Cass and Steph being on opposite sides and then learning there's something more. And then, oh, man, Oracle is there. We've got to save her. And then the prison riot just being, I felt like, a lot of fun and and seeing how Steph made her way. You know, orange is the, I don't know, maybe purple is the new orange, making her way and becoming queen of the yard and, and having heroes and villains on her side and having this huge riot and then people going through. So yeah, it was really interesting. And then of course, everyone coming back together and there being hope literally. And, and at one point they said something, you know, once a back girl, Oh, always a back girl. And so I wondered, is it true? Is it true? Once a back girl, always a back girl. And I, not only inside the comic world, but outside too, do we as readers always associate a character that they used to be back girl, or do you pass over it and say, oh no, Cass, she's orphan. That's who she is. Steph is spoiler. That's her uh, everything, her identity. Because also you think about Huntress. She was back girl, kind of, without permission. Does that mean that we always need to call on her to be back girl? Or even that woman, lady, young lady that I don't care for, miss it? She's kind of back girl-esque. Hmm. <laughs> I think that the back girl cowl represents something different than it does the Robin cowl. I think it brings something different. And so in that sense... Once you are a back girl, which is really special, I think you hold on to that. And you are always a back girl until you betray what that cowl means. So maybe I'll go for that. But still, it's a confusing message just because we don't really call them back girl, even though the subtitle is back girls. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I think, ah, man, you could... Ah, if I wrote comics, I'd have such a good story to tell with a Batgirl story. I think that's what I would investigate first is just what does it mean to be Batgirl and and having these three different women and um, how they're relating to each other and, and what they bring to the table, to the cowl. But no one's asking me. So, okay, there you go. I think that's it. I felt like it was a bit scattered. You know, when I get ready to record... I think to myself, am I ready? And I like to think that I am, but then sometimes I forget things. And and that was a bit scattered, so I apologize about that. But that is the story. I have mixed feelings about it. I think it, it does bring up some good questions about the importance of these different characters. And also, I think that it does some things with characters that seem a bit off but the one character i think that stays true is definitely barbara i think she's certainly highlighted even though she's barely in the story which is interesting so i'm going to give this 7.5 out of 10 prison riots and that is it for my comic coverage of this episode so we're wrapping up with anime watch list so i did mention lupon since that's in my joy category i'm not going to mention it here but i did watch two series One is Himotu Umaru-chan or My Two-Faced Little Sister, 2015, 12 episodes plus some specials. People are not always who they appear to be, as is the case with Umaru Doma, the perfect high school girl. That is, until she gets home. Once, (laughs) uh, Once the front door closes, the real fun begins. When she dons her hamster hoodie, she transforms from a refined, overachieving student into a lazy junk food eating otaku, leaving all the housework to her responsible old brother Taihei 
whether she's hanging out with her friends Nana Abina and Kire Motoba or competing with her self-proclaimed rival, Sylphenford Takibana, Umaru knows how to kick back and have some fun. It's a cute story that follows the daily adventures of Umaru and Taihei as they take care of and put up with each other the best that they can, as well as the unbreakable bonds between friends and siblings. I, so the youngest child of the Sawyers asked if I wanted to watch an anime. I think we were biding time until must have been a pancake breakfast. I don't remember what was that. Oh, I was doing my laundry over there. So I thought, yeah, let's do it. And Ellie... <laughs> Who does not like this kind of stuff? Even, you know, when I tried to indoctrinate people, she seemed like she was engaged in watching because she had her phone as if she were ready to text, but she was just so (laughs) enraptured by what was going on. I mean, you can just watch the first few moments of the show and you'll get a sense of what it was. But I, she, Molly showed me this and then she showed me an episode of, it's like High School of the Dead or Dead High School. I can't remember what it was called now. Uh, but that one I wasn't as engaged with. The the real change at the end of the first episode of that particular one, you get a sense of, oh, wow, actually there are zombies and not all of that. But this one I was really engaging with. And so I ended up watching the the rest of it pretty soon after. So thanks to Molly. And then I watched Kids on the Slope or Sakamichi no Aporon, Apollo on the Slope, 12 episodes, 2012. Introverted classic pianist and top student, Karu Nishimi has just arrived in Kyushu for his first year of high school. Having constantly moved from place to place since his childhood, he abandons all hope of fitting in, preparing himself for another lonely, meaningless year. That is, until he encounters the notorious delinquent Sentaru Kawabuchi. Sentaru's immeasurable love for jazz music inspires Karu to learn more about the genre, and as a result, he slowly starts to break out of his shell, making his very first friend. Karu begins playing the piano at after-school jazz sessions located in the basement of a fellow student Ritsuku Mukai's family-owned record shop. As he discovers the immense joy of using his musical talents to bring enjoyment to himself and others, Karu's summer might just crescendo into one that he will remember for forever. And I feel like it took place in 65, 66. So there is, it feels timeless, but I think there are certain aspects of it that I thought, oh, when is, when is this actually taking place? And a character mentions Sound of the Music and that she was unable to see it when it came out. She was just, she, and so I feel like it is in the 60s, but this is, it's a really good show. I think it's deep. It, it tackles many things, mostly, you know, family circumstances. I did get really confused and frustrated with the, some male female dynamics mainly because it seemed like the the Ritsuko had feelings for Karu and then like she was jealous of something and then he, he confesses his love for her and then she freaks out because she has feelings for someone else I got so confused so I was really invested in in the relationships between them but he has some anxiety especially with people and you see him come out of his shell as it said and, and him and Sentaru and a bit of a sad ending. Well, hold on. I guess like towards the end, it becomes sad uh, with a certain event. But then the end end was like, yeah, they're all together. So I, I highly recommend that. I thought it was really good. And I already did. What are you wearing? So we are at this stage of the game where I go through a bazillion books that I've read. Okay. So I'm pretty sure the last one I mentioned from the previous episode was the Iron Fist that I've been doing. 
So The Song Reader by Lisa Tucker, which was one of my Rory Gilmore's reading list books. I really enjoyed that. So this was interlibrary loan. Any of the interlibrary loans, I have no idea what I'm going to read. And so I'm always, well, I'm always surprised either pleasantly or not. But this was really interesting. It was about two sisters and one of them, instead of palm reading, used song reading. So she would talk to people but use songs that they heard in their head or they were their favorites to figure out, you know, pieces of their lives. And it, it gets really intense. It is not, I mean, there's some happy moments, certainly, but yeah, it's, it's ups and downs for, for this particular family. And, and I, it, it touches upon, I think mental illness is always there, but it's not really talked about for, I think, different reasons. It's certainly something that I might bring on required reading, but I, I actually highly recommend that. I gave it five stars, so I, I recommend that. I did read uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles' Jenica by Brom Revel, which is Jenica, if I, no one's going to know. She is now the fifth mutant turtle, and so just seeing what she gets, gets up to. Sabrina, Something Wicked by Kelly Thompson, Veronica Fish, isn't it? Which continues that it's a lighter tone compared to the, what is it, Roberto something Acasa, Seguero Acasa, his, his take on it. Yeah, so that's fun if, if you like Sabrina. The Splendid and the Vile, A Saga of Churchill, Family and Defiance During the Blitz by Eric Larson, which I recommend and not the comic Eric Larson. I've read two others by him, if you recall, Devil in the White City, which is on Rory Gilmer's reading list, and Beast in the Garden. And so I just like the way he writes. It's historical. But it reads really well. So you're clearly reading, and it's during the blitz. So you're clearly reading nonfiction and history, but it, it, it reads really smoothly, and I like how he does it. A Quiet Storm by Rachel Housel Hall, and again, an interlibrary loan, really focusing a great deal. The mental illness is at the center of this and how people don't speak about it or, you know, it's taboo, and, and how does it impact people, not only the person who is suffering, but other people that are with them. I I think, what was it? When someone was talking to me that was reading, she said, is this a good book? And I said that I was disturbed or uncomfortable. It was really good, but I, I was in a tough position of really feeling bad for one of the sisters. Again, two sisters, because one of them, almost in a, what was that book called by Jodi Picoult? Shoot, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. But just that one was had to be counted on at all times to protect the other one, even though the other one was older. But just this this burden, this onus, and, and what does that look like? And, and unfortunately, you know, our empathy, of course, tends towards the person who is suffering, but you kind of wonder about the person that is always meant to be helping out. This, so it was a Black story written by a Black author, and I just... I don't work for this place anymore, but at my school, someone in a high position, a high authority, the highest authority, that's all I'll say, who happens to be a black man, said in private as well as public conversations that black people do not suffer from mental illness. And he said in these public conversations, it had gotten around to students and when I found out about this, I became ill. I mean, 
you know, I jokingly say like, it makes me sick to my stomach. I did become sick to my stomach that I, that someone who has that power and influence would say such a damaging and false thing. And that students could hear about that. Mental illness does not discriminate based on race. It can happen to everyone. And so that right there, when I was reading this book, all I could think about was, man, I should give this book to this man so that he can read it. But I won't do that because that's passive aggressive. But I do recommend it. And there was a great ending point. Oh, actually, I have that in text because I took a picture of that and that last page or the wasn't the acknowledgments, I don't think, but it was uh, near the end by the author. I sent it to two of my former colleagues. Note from the author, yep. All families have secrets. Unfortunately, mental illness is one of those secrets. Too often, we prefer not to think of it as a problem. Instead, we laugh at it when it manifests itself in that strange uncle you avoid during Thanksgiving. Or we think we can pray it away without seeing a professional about it. I wrote a quiet storm out of my frustration with families who refuse to deal with this silent killer and with the sanctimonious who simply label it as sin. Manic depression is a disease that crosses gender, racial, and class lines. Are you listening to this? It does not develop from a person's lack of willpower, his or her economic status, or bad circumstances. We can choose to ignore mental illness, to belittle it, or to be ashamed, but we should know it will destroy. You only need to consider the number of people who are imprisoned, homeless, and institutionalized because of this illness to know that this is true. As a Christian, I believe that God heals, but I also believe that he works through psychologists and psychiatrists just as he works through neurosurgeons, obstetricians, and allergists. How can we expect God to heal us when we are too ashamed to even admit that we're sick can't we meet him halfway a quiet storm shows what happens when a family won't so disturbing yeah it was an unsettling story but perhaps more unsettling is an ignorant statement like black people don't have mental illness moving on leave the world behind by ruman alam and i think this is people i don't know it's really popular right now is rather bizarre because for 30 pages i'm following a family on vacation i thought is this it and then a couple shows up and it sort of changes. It was okay. I it's, he seemed pretentious because he's using these like $5 scrabble words that, you know, Ale or Atle, something like that, which is a particular position to the wind. He uses that. And so I'm having to look up these words that I've never seen before. So it, it was Mexican Gothic by Sylvia Moreno Garcia. I really liked it. I don't recommend the audible version. I do not recommend the audible version. I, it was, she was not a good narrator in my opinion. She was good for the, um, the pronunciations of the Spanish words and places and people, but no life in her. She was not the character, but this is great. There's some gaslighting. It's like Jane Eyre mixed with, Rebecca and an actual Hispanic or Mexican story, which is great because I feel like we don't have many of those. <laughs> so if I'm, I'm glad I, I need to seek out more. I think I've been really focused on black stories and black authors, and I need to look more for um, Mexican and Hispanic and things like that to continue to broaden my horizons. So I recommend that untamed by Glennon Doyle, which was great. And really, I think just, If if I could summarize it, stop trying to please other people and really owning yourself and owning your womanhood. And there are some things that I struggled with. I think it convicted me to some things, but even in those convictions, it also made me really 
conflicted. Like, how do I do this? And she says, you know, if you choose to either please other people, but have yourself sort of caged in, or if you free yourself, but you're going to hurt people, you need to free yourself. And so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I can kind of see what you're saying, but at the same time, ooh, I don't know about that. So Night by uh, Eli Wiesel, which was the second time that I read it again, Number one, I think everyone should be reading it. I think you should be reading it to your kids at a certain extent. Um, if it's not in school, it just needs to be read, period. And this will be the April episode of Required Reading to Read That. And I just finished today, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin D'Angelo. And I highly recommend that as well. I think she's getting flack as well as, I think, Ibram, you know, I like Ibram X. Kendi, about uh, being too harsh on people and that if we're trying to pull the conservatives over the less progressive people even though progressive is is a bit of a dangerous word at least in white fragility then we they need to be gentler but it almost is ironic that you're saying you need to be gentler because you're proving the point of the title is that you can't be you can't be given the facts because you can't emotionally handle it. So personally, I would love to be told, like, this is where you... And a lot of this stuff, I was like, yep, yep, yep. And thinking, oh, man, yeah, you know, I, I totally do that. But wanting that, wanting serious conversations of, hey, Stella, you did this. You know, this was problematic. And then owning that. So I feel like I I really love having that relationship with Donovan where we can talk about it. And then I think, you know, now with Shy as well, it has been great to to talk with her on a different level because Shy is a woman. So it's it's been great and, and I hope that people, whether it's public or private, uh, public is is fine if it's a learning experience to be like, hey, this was so it's problematic what you had said. So I appreciate learning from that. So I recommend it, frankly. Um, if if you need your hand held, then I guess you need to look at another book that is a bit more gentle. So there you go. White Fragility. Okay, that's I've read all that stuff. Oh, people, before I go, today I got news that my final interlibrary loan came in a.k.a. my final Rory Gilmore's Reading West book came in. So 10 and a half years, the journey will culminate in some Don Powell novels from 1930 to 1942. It is five novels in one, so it might take me a bit, but it's about my journey is going to end. I can't believe it. I cannot believe it. I picked it up. So $3 spent again. Okay, well... This is the episode. It's done. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to Batgirl to Oracle at gmail.com. I think the thing I'm reaching out for you about is would you like to have Do you think that'd be worthwhile to have an episode on colorism in comics and uh, sexual assault and, and rape in that presentation? And then, of course, my, my question about that as well, rape and, and sexual assault in media. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher, like the show on Facebook, or follow it on Twitter at Backroll Oracle, and subscribe to the show on YouTube for an uncut version. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. Support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Next time, we've got some Batman modern, we've got some Nightwing modern, and some random vintage stuff that I have yet to schedule out what that is. So just be prepared for that. But until then, be safe, love one another, 
show empathy, compassion towards others. Please wear your mask, even if you're vaccinated. And uh, yeah, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?